This morning's sermon is the first in a three-part series in the run-up to Election Day, because you haven't heard enough about the election in the past few days and weeks. Uh, Next week, the sermon topic will be the Obama question, a progressive perspective, and the final part will be on November 4th about the democratic process, democracy and the democratic process is inherent um, to Unitarian Universalist principles and values. Let me reassure you from the outset that I have no intention of telling you whom to vote for, whether to vote red or blue. And in future years, with a different set of candidates, I may find it, I may well not find it interesting or appropriate to spend three sermons preaching about the election. But this year, I do find President Obama and Governor Romney to be intriguing figures, albeit for different reasons. Accordingly, my approach to talking about these two men will be quite different, but I'll leave my remarks for President Obama for next week, lest I end up preaching my sermon, telling you, giving you a preview. So for now, let me say at the beginning as well that I don't think it would be helpful um, for me to take the stance of a pundit this morning concerning Mr. Romney. Although I have strong opinions about Mr. Romney's politics, I'm more qualified to address one particular aspect about him that you can perhaps guess from this morning's spoken meditation, his Mormon faith. Of historical note, Mr. Romney is far from the first Mormon to run for president. In addition to his father, George Romney, who was a candidate for the Republican presidential election in 1968, Joseph Smith Jr., the founder of the Latter-day Saints movement, ran for president as an independent in 1844, in the same cycle in which the Whig candidate, Henry Clay, was defeated by the Democratic candidate, James Polk, who became our nation's 11th president. Now, I bring up Joseph Smith Jr.'s presidential run because I think it's perhaps helpful to remember in our nation's history that Smith's candidacy was brought to a tragic premature halt when he was killed by an angry mob in June of 1844. That tragic episode was far from the first or last example of prejudice against Mormons in this country. And I hope we can all agree that reflexive anti-Mormonism is as equally repugnant as anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, or any other form of unthoughtful religious bigotry. Now, that doesn't mean that any of those religions or any religion is beyond critique. Quite opposite is the case. But violence or uninformed prejudice is certainly not the answer or the proper response. Along these lines, our highly religious nation needs regularly to be reminded that presidential candidates or not, or at least should not be running to be pastor-in-chief. Predating even the passage of the First Amendment with its Freedom of Religion Clause, Article 6, Paragraph 3 of the U.S. Constitution states that no religious test shall ever be required as qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Almost a year ago, in a debate for the Republican nomination for president, Mr. Romney made an important affirmation of that passage. Uh, addressing a controversy making headlines at the time of some evangelical pastors calling Mormonism a cult, Mr. Romney said, the founders of this country went to great length 
to make sure and even put in the Constitution that we would not choose people to represent us in government based on their religion. That this would be a nation that recognizes and respected other faiths. That there's a plurality of faiths where there is tolerance of other faiths. That's bedrock principle. The concept that we select people based on the church or the synagogue they go to, I think that's very dangerous and an an enormous departure from the principles of our Constitution. I agree here with Mr. Romney, and although we can debate the extent to which this statement is merely one in a long line of cynical political calculations on his part, I'm grateful for sane, rational political statements wherever I can find them, because they're often too rare. That being said, I'd like to say a few words about Mormonism more generally. First of all, the name Mormonism is not what Mormons have traditionally preferred to call themselves. It's like calling Muslims Mohammedans. Some of you may have seen that if you look back in an old enough textbook. It exposes an outsider's ignorance of a culture. It's actually like using the term Hinduism. You know, Hinduism is this cultural construct that we've imposed on the very diverse religions around the Hindus River in, in India. We just assumed, well, we have Buddhism, we have Christianity, we have Islam. That must be Hinduism. So thanks, Western scholars. Uh, the name Mormon or Mormonism comes from outsiders being most familiar with the Book of Mormon. You know, they get handed the Book of Mormon. Oh, these must be Mormons. And perhaps this also comes from the reticence of some Christians to use the preferred nomenclature, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. For those individuals and groups that are unsure about the relationship of Mormonism to so-called traditional Christianity, the name Mormonism is often more palatable than using the name Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in referring to the religion founded by Joseph Smith. Now, I don't have a dog in that fight at this point, but you can see the tension and why Mormonism may have become more popular. Now, some of you may also recall the Mormon Church's public media campaign leading up to the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City, Utah, in which one Mitt Romney was president and CEO of the Olympic Organizing Committee. The media campaign, um, which came from the church, not from the Olympics organizing office, discouraged the use of the term Mormon and Mormonism and encouraged the use of the terms Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, or LDS for short. More recently, likely due in no small part to Mr. Romney's run for the president, although they would tell you otherwise, there has been an increasing trend in the LDS church seeking to reclaim that term Mormonism in a, in Mormon in a more positive light. As reported in the New York Times in 2009, the Mormon church contracted with two major advertising firms that, to help change its public image. Initial focus groups found that the most common words many Americans associated with Mormonism were secretive, cultish, sexist, controlling, pushy, and anti-gay. Now, that's probably pretty close to what they'd say about Christian, but that's a separate sermon. 
In response, Mormon leaders mounted a multi-million dollar ad campaign that continues to this day to tell the personal stories of diverse figures within Mormonism with the common slogan, I'm a Mormon. How many of you have seen the I'm a, Mor- and I, I'm a Mormon campaign? So not enough of you. They're not doing a good enough job, apparently. Uh, examples range from a Mormon Iraqi veteran to Mia B. Love, who is black, a daughter of Haitian immigrants, and mayor of Saratoga Springs, Utah, with that slogan, I'm a Mormon. Mayor Love, incidentally, is also currently the 2012 Republican Party nominee for the U.S. House of Representatives in Utah's 2nd Congressional District. And although Mormons, from Republican presidential nominee John Huntsman to conservative commentator Glenn Beck, also a Mormon, are stereotypically associated with the Republican Party, it's noteworthy that Harry Reid, the Democratic Senate Majority Leader, is also a Mormon. I don't know if he's participated in that I'm a Mormon campaign, though. Uh, For fans of science fiction, Orson Orson Scott Card is a Mormon, as is Stephanie Meyer, the author of the Twilight series, which has a lot of Mormon themes if you read it through that lens. Former NFL quarterback Steve Young is a Mormon, I'm told. I really don't know anything about sports. Uh, as well as the late Stephen Covey, author of the best-selling book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And for those who remember the 70s, let's not forget the musical group, the Osmonds. In considering the current position of Mormonism within American culture, one of the most insightful commentators I've found is Matthew Bowman, who was raised Mormon, but also conveniently has a PhD in American religious history from Georgetown University. Bowman wrote an article for Time Magazine recently in response to the question, is this the Mormon moment? He writes that a Mormon moment, in my opinion, would meet a sudden instant in which America collectively grows up, reexamines its prejudices, learns more about what a foreign faith actually is, and realizes that its adherents are not so different after all. Bowman pushes back against direct correlations between what Jack Kennedy did for Roman Catholicism in America and what Mitt Romney represents for Mormonism. Bowman argues that a more fruitful comparison could be made between Mr. Romney's candidacy and that of Al Smith. Who remembers Al Smith running for president? Anybody? A few. All right. Uh, in that, you know, just from the history books, it's okay. We don't have to check ages. In 1932, Smith, a three-term governor of New York, was the first Roman Catholic nominee for president of the United States. Was the was the first Roman Catholic nominee. Oh, in 28. Okay, we'll check it. Okay. <laughs> the footnote of the sermon will be uh, corrected if, if needed. Thank you. Uh, Herbert, fact-checking. All right, it's good. We need more of that. Uh, moderating my sermon. Uh, it's good. Uh, Herbert Hoover's uh, landslide defeat of Smith was due in no small part to a smear campaign that Smith's religion would require him to be more obedient to the Roman Catholic hierarchy than to the U.S. Constitution. Fortunately, anti-Mormonism in this election cycle has not been as strong as some feared, as some predicted even. And it is significant that the Romney-Ryan ticket represents the first time in U.S. history that there has been a majority party ticket with no Protestant Christians. 
As was emphasized at the recent vice presidential debate, both Representative Ryan and Vice President Biden are Roman Catholic. Let's briefly consider some demographics that buttress Bowman's point that Mr. Romney may be a closer parallel to Al Smith than to Jack Kennedy. When Kennedy battled Nixon in 1960, I think I got that date right. Okay. Uh, for the, it's a little closer to my uh, wheelhouse. Uh, when that happened in 1960, approximately 25% of Americans were Roman Catholic, 25%. Most Americans at that point had a Catholic neighbor, a Catholic coworker, a Catholic friend. Um, Notre Dame football had rocketed to prominence. Bishop Fulton Sheen was dispensing advice on national TV talk shows. In contrast to 25% of U.S. citizens being Catholic during Kennedy's election, today only about 2% of Americans are Mormon. And most of them live along what's known as the Mormon Corridor, from Idaho um, south through Utah into Arizona. The result is that Mormons continue to seem unfamiliar to many Americans, or in Bowman's words, many Americans simply know no Mormons whom they feel comfortable enough asking about their underwear. Those of you who know about the magic underwear, well, you get that joke. Okay. Driving down I-495, we may see the golden spires of the Washington, D.C. LDS temple, but most of us are likely much less familiar with what goes on behind those walls than what goes on inside the walls of your average Roman Catholic cathedral, for example. Some of us here could perhaps even find ourselves knowing every, saying, everything I know about Mormonism I learned from Book of Mormon the musical. How many of you have heard that soundtrack? A few? Okay. Uh, it's coming to the Kennedy Center this summer. So, uh, I love the soundtrack to the show. As a fan of Broadway, satire, South Park, and most things religious, I may be this musical's target audience. But I'll warn you to avoid the show at all costs if you're easily offended. I'm, I'm really being serious. It's a very offensive show. It's, uh, it's, if you may should watch an episode of South Park to help decide whether you're... Uh, whether you, but it's, it's, it's quite good. Um, and we should be clear that this musical trades in stereotypes. Now, so to address some real-life tensions about Mormonism, many Mormons understand themselves to be Christian. But many evangelical Christians would reject that assertion. Interestingly, from the perspective of Unitarian Universalism, Mormons do not believe in the Trinity. That's part of the reasons that many evangelical Christians have a problem. But unlike UUs, they also believe that God, whom they call, often call Heavenly Father, has a flesh and bone body. And in my favorite underreported Mormon belief, God is married. So we've seen the nines that Jesus may have been married, probably not, separate sermon. But uh, Mormons do believe God is married. And my secret hope is that Heavenly Mother is just lying in wait for a feminist uprising in Mormonism. And in all seriousness, back in 1977, during the Mormon General Conference, an organization called Mormons for the Equal Rights Amendment hired a plane and flew a banner over the Salt Lake LDS Temple that said, Mother in Heaven supports ERA. Seriously, uh, it's awesome. <laughs> There's a lot more that could be said about Mormon beliefs, but if pressed about what actually happened historically about the founding of Mormonism, I would probably agree less with the traditional accounts of Joseph Smith translating gold plates from God 
and agree more with scholars who speculate that Smith was some type of religious genius, capable of producing a text from his own fiery imagination. Keep in mind that Smith was only 24 when he translated the Book of Mormon, or at least when he published it. We'll say that, when he published the Book of Mormon. And I'm not sure if there's any way of determining, honestly, at this late date, whether or not Smith always believed his own story or merely came to believe his own story that the text was from God. But perhaps Stephen Colbert said it better. Mormons believe Joseph Smith received golden plates from an angel on a hill when everybody knows that Moses got stone tablets from a burning bush on a mountain. That was in his uh, regularly recurring part of his show called Yahweh or No Way. For me, the takeaway is the invitation to take religion seriously, but not always literally. To take it metaphorically, to take it sacramentally, but not always literally. And I'm hopeful that over time, a historical critical approach to Mormonism will produce an increasingly large group of socially progressive, open-minded, heavenly mother-loving Mormons, similar to the shift we have seen with um, historically patriarchal, hierarchical, and oppressive religions that are increasingly forced to reckon with 21st century knowledge and experience. To this end, I was pleased to see just this past week that the University of Virginia, Jefferson's University, announced a new chair of Mormon studies in the religion department. I'll be interested to see what an increasingly academically informed Mormonism looks like. But to return to the spoken meditation that you heard earlier, perhaps my biggest takeaway from learning more about Mormonism as a result of Mitt Romney's candidacy is that for many Mormons, the traditional religious beliefs are much less important than the way of life that Mormonism represents. You know, these exotic beliefs get all the headlines, but the more I talk to actual Mormons that have things like PhDs and religions, they say that's, and even the Mormon hierarchy will say, that's just not that important. That's not really what we talk about in Sunday school. That's not what we emphasize. It's about a way of life. Now, it may be a way of life you disagree with, but that's a separate issue. In a New York Magazine interview, Matt Bowman put it this way. Mormonism isn't really a theological religion. It's about right practice rather than right belief. He writes, I thought the Faith in America speech that Romney gave during the 2008 campaign was intensely Mormon. He said over and over, look at the way I've lived my life. Look at these values that I have. Look at my family that I've raised. Ignore the part about the dog, right? Uh, look at how I've practiced my business. In that speech, he's saying the things that he believes Mormonism is about. You may disagree with his business practices. But that's him defending his religion. He's saying, look at my life. Don't look at these beliefs. That's what a lot of Mormons would tell you. That the religion is more about right practice, what scholars call orthopraxy, more than right belief, what scholars call orthodoxy. Notice that these two words, what they have in common, that prefix ortho, which means right or correct. Just as an orthodontist straightens or corrects your teeth to go the right way, um, 
orthopraxy or orthodoxy is about correcting or straightening your actions or beliefs according to an allegedly unchanged historical standard. And if you're anything like me, you've probably found yourself occasionally in the middle of a debate with someone who's coming from an orthodox or orthoprax perspective. With rare exceptions, these arguments quickly become predictable, repetitive, and tiresome, at least for me. And I sometimes think of it similar to beating your head against a brick wall. The wall of orthodoxy and orthopraxy escapes unscathed, but your head starts to hurt a lot. And even though I appreciate the importance of emphasizing that Mormonism is an orthopraxy more than an orthodoxy, I think we religious liberals often fail to appreciate the difference between liberal religion and either orthodoxy or orthopraxy. The critical difference is in that first source of Unitarian Universalism, direct experience. The turn to liberal religion is about taking your personal experience as equally valid or as even more important than traditional sources that claim authority based on alleged historical precedent. As Unitarian Universalists sometimes like to say, if your firsthand experience leads you to question traditional religious doctrines, question traditional authorities, or question traditional codes of behavior, you may be a UU and not know it. And as an example of this liberalization, at the end of the Book of Mormon, the musical, after all the satire, the misadventures, the offensive jokes, there's arguably a quite substantive moral lesson, as there often is at the end of many South Park episodes. The musical's from the creator of South Park. Um that includes a vision of a more liberal Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Earlier in the play, there's a song called I Believe. It was performed at the Tonys, for those who watch that, about Mormons believing that God lives on a planet named Kolob and that you can get your own planet after you die. But at the end of the play, you hear a shift from otherworldly religions, you know, what's going to happen in the so-called next world, to a this-worldly religion, where one of the actors evaluates all they've learned on their missionary misadventures to Uganda. They had hoped to go to Florida. Uh, So he evaluates all they've learned on these missionary misadventures in Uganda and declares that that he doesn't want to reject Mormonism. He wants to reinterpret it, to be relevant to modern times. He says, we're still Latter-day Saints, all of us. Even if we change some things, even if we break the rules or doubt that God exists, we can still work together and we can make this our paradise planet. It's just a Broadway musical, not a new revelation from the Mormon hierarchy. But I think we need to celebrate moves toward more open-minded religion whenever we find them in the hopes of indeed making this our paradise planet. And I'd love to have increasing numbers of Mormons willing to stand up in support of events like this afternoon's People of Faith for Marriage Equality rally. So maybe that's coming. Uh, In the musical, one of the missionaries is named Arnold Cunningham, and this, this new interpretation of the Book of Jesus Christ, of the Book of Mormon, they call it the Book of Arnold. And 
I think there's something to that. I used to sometimes invite Christian congregations to think about why are we limiting ourselves just to the gospel of Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John. What would the gospel according to Jeff look like? What would the gospel according to Sabrina look like? You know, I think we can ask that question about UUism as well. What does, you know, saying what's really true because I know it in my own direct experience. Now, from the opposite direction, one of the questions I asked myself in preparation for this sermon is, what would it look like if Mormonism were one of the sources for Unitarian Universalism? Now, arguably, it's already included in the third source, wisdom from the world's religions, which inspires us to our ethical and spiritual life. And perhaps we UUs, who trend so strongly toward the freedom of the individual, have some lessons we could learn from Mormons about building community, about taking care of each other, about covenant commitments, about tithing 10% of your income. Uh, You'll hear more about that from uh, Roger later. Uh, Along these lines, the accusation is often made that many people are increasingly in echo chambers, listening mostly to news that reaffirms their preconceived notions. So I'm curious if there's anything you have heard this morning about the historical, uh, ethical, or theological context of contemporary Mormonism that has challenged your preconceived notions or expanded them. So I'll leave you with two questions. In your opinion, What wisdom, if any, does Unitarian Universalism have to draw from Mormonism? And what wisdom, if any, might Mormonism have even for you?